Welcome to Craftlit, the podcast for crafters who like books. My name is Heather Wardover, and I'm podcasting from my corner of the Sonoran Desert, the Old Pueblo, Tucson, Arizona. Episode 98, How About You? This episode of Craftlet is brought to you by Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute at goldengatefiberinstitute.org. And just to remind you, the Golden Gate Fiber Institute Summer Intensive starts July 28th and runs through August 3rd, so get yourself signed up now. Well, hello. I am having a much better week, which is not to say less hectic or crazy or even lame, but uh, better nonetheless. I have actually been able to get things done. Not everything, but many things. And, and I also have something really fun to look forward to, which is Tomorrow at uh, 1.30, I am getting on a plane with my two boys, and we are heading to New York City for a slightly long weekend. You will recall that a year and a half ago, my grandmother-in-law passed away, which was uh, a very sad event. She was a spectacular woman, but her niece Nancy has managed to get a park bench dedicated to her in Central Park. And so we are going out for the the dedication of that and also getting to see all of our fabulous friends who we miss quite a lot in New York, in Croton-on-Hudson. So I will be there. And I wanted to say, because I know some of you are in New York City, I am going to post this before we leave. So if you are there and if you are listening, I will be at the Museum of Natural History on Tuesday. And I will be wearing probably khaki chinos and um, either a pink uh, What Would Madame Defarge Knit or the Hot Men of Craft Lit shirt and um, or maybe, if not those two shirts, uh, maybe my I Knit shirt, which is white and has a green bar that says I Knit like iTunes or I Work or I Life. Uh, that's my goal. Is, is to be there wearing those things. I will have two young boys and a husband in tow. I am also going to get to take the boys to see The Lion King on Saturday. And this is really quite exciting because both of the boys are musical, but the younger of the two is like crazy musical boy. He's, um, I, don't, I don't even know how to describe it. My mom tells the story. We took them to see the local children's theater version of Peter Pan, which was really quite extraordinary. They brought in Kathy Rigby and the guys who did the rigging for Kathy Rigby. So these kids in the children's theater version that we saw, they flew. And, you know, they tried to recreate the sets, and it was all really quite wonderful. But at the end, when Peter Pan is singing with Wendy's daughter... Um, the, the end line, you can go to never, never land, and it's this final huge credenza, you know, and it's bombastic and wonderful and, and makes you cry at the end. Well, my little boy, who was sitting in between um, my mom and me, stood on his chair and slowly lifted his arms as the music crescendoed, and it was just 
it just brought tears to our eyes. It was just so, so wonderful. And I had the reaction when I first saw Lion King. For for those of you who haven't seen it, Julie Taymor, who is known to us in the theater world as a really amazing avant-garde, avant-garde puppeteer, has become known to the rest of the world because Lion King was very successful. And she just did that, um, what is it, uh, the... Beatles movie that was all kind of weird puppets and funky music using Beatles music to to tell a different story um, across the universe. Um, That's really mainstream for her. When she did Lion King, we realized it was either going to be a work of absolute heartbreaking genius and everyone was going to love it or it was going to be one of the biggest disasters ever because people would find it completely inaccessible. Clearly, it turned out to be a blockbuster. It's still running. But Andrew and I saw it in previews before we'd read anything about it, except for our funky theater stuff. So no one really knew what we were getting into. And a lot of people were saying, oh, you know, Disney, blah. It's going to be blah. It's going to be horrible. Well, the opening, just like in the movie, is you kind of see the animals crossing the veldt. And the I'm going to choke up just talking about it. I can't explain why this happens. It just does. Um, The scene opens on stage and a, as I recall, a sun that is made out of paper slats um, is lifted. It's like a curtain, but it's a slatted curtain. So it looks like the sun is shimmering and the red sun rises in the background and the first of the animals cross the stage. And the first one is a giraffe. And you have to understand this is a giraffe-sized giraffe. And it's a human in a puppet costume. Uh, The human's arms and legs are the legs of the giraffe. And the human's head is wearing basically a giraffe neck hat. And I find it heartbreaking. Just completely wipes me out every time. I don't know why. And then, you know, all these other animals start walking down the aisles and there are elephants and there's the monkeys and there's all of... Oh my goodness. It's it's just beautiful. And I guess part of it is because one of the things that I've always loved about theater is the suspension of disbelief. That you have to allow people to create a magical world for you to inhabit briefly for those those two hours or so and maybe it's because the first show I ever did in high school that was a really you know serious kind of grown-up show was Our Town and as a freshman I was cast as Emily's mother which is unheard of I think it was just honestly because I was tall but as Emily's mother you have to work out cooking breakfast twice I think it's twice, two or three times in the show, and it has to be believable. And so the woman who played Mrs. Um, George's mom, George Webb, and I, we worked out, we taped off where our furniture was, where the table would be, where our stove would be, where the icebox would be, you know, all these things so that we could be very consistent about what we did. And we, honest to God, created a complete, universe for ourselves on stage and I've gone back and watched the videotape of our town much later and I'm still stupefied at how specific we were being and 
I guess maybe that's why I have this real affinity for things like Lion King that are completely imaginary, ludicrous imaginary, but so beautiful, where the actors are so committed to what they're doing that you can't help but go along for the ride. So knowing that that's what I'm taking them to, and knowing how the youngest one, the younger one, responds to theater and music, I'm very, very interested to see how his little mind is going to wrap around Lion King. I'm so excited. So we have a good weekend coming up. We've had a wonderful week. Uh, my husband's brother, his uh, brother, my husband's cousin has been staying with us, which has been great. We went and saw the Arizona Diamondbacks play, which was great. What a theater. Talk about theater of baseball. I'm not using theater accidentally. I mean it. The Arizona Diamondbacks Stadium has an, a roof that opens. And when the roof opens, which happens after the third inning, they also turn these enormous mosaics. I mean, the mosaics have to be, oh, I don't know, 10 or 15 rows, like seat rows in the stadium, high, and at least one entire section wide, just to give you some idea of perspective. Um, and they're, they're covered with, you know, baseball or sports motif mosaics. And they turn those around so that they become these huge open windows. So you get light and you get air and yes, it was 96 degrees outside, but you know, you really didn't care. It was dry and it was beautiful. So I'm, oh, I'm just thrilled, thrilled. I also have some other happy news for other people as well. Um, Tara, Tara of Virginia is the May winner. So Tara, you are getting two skeins, 175 yard each yards each in the colorway roasted chilies of Claudia hand-painted yarns in fingering weight merino. This is sock yarn. You can machine wash it on the delicate cycle and it is coming to you. And we have our listener uh, Caroline to thank for the May incentive. We do have a June incentive coming up with Yellow Dog once again. And, and I'm going to have to email her because I can't remember what we agreed on. <laughs> So for next week, you'll forgive me, I'm kind of New York bound right now, but we will have a June incentive as well for uh, for you who decide to donate. Very, very exciting. I think that's the main news this week. I don't have a lot of newsy news for you because I'm trying not to collect newsy news this week. I really just need to get packed and get gone. Uh, oh, but you may ask, what is the how about you for the title of this week's episode? And the how about you is, I like New York in June. How about you? And I'm going to try and find that audio to play you out with today. Because while it may be completely illegal, it's also a really good song. So please, please go purchase it from iTunes. And then it won't be so illegal for me to play you a piece of it. For those of you who are listening for the first time, this podcast is carried at iTunes and a library of all the previous episodes are carried on the show notes at craftlit.blogspot.com. You'll find the entire library listed down the right-hand side of the show notes page, including titles of and stop and start times of 
the different books that we've read. You can download those individually there, or you can subscribe and get them all downloaded for you at iTunes. I also wanted to let you know that the banana bread recipe from last week was extremely popular and that a number of you were not able to write it down because you were in the car. I will write down the recipe, but I'm only going to write down the amounts and the, the things. I'm not going to give any instructions on how to do it because I really don't want it to show up on some website where somebody else is going to get credit for it. It's just for us. You understand. Uh, I also needed to tell you it was in a 350 degree oven. Most, most you know, generic ba baked goods like um, the beer bread, self-rising dough bread, things like that, I think most of them in my in my work seem to show up at 350 degrees. Regardless, it's 350 for an hour for the banana bread and about 35, but you kind of have to keep your eyeball on it, 35 minutes-ish for banana bread muffins. So there will be information in the show notes for you on that respect. I'm also going to put some links to some cooking videos that I found. I'm trying to figure out we're in kind of a, a weird twilight zone with cooking in the family because I uh, definitely need to eat low carb, not no carb, uh, but low carb in that I don't really need bread and I don't really need sugar. And if I'm going to eat something breadish, it should be multigrain. I don't really need potatoes. I love all these things, but they're not necessarily the best thing for me. So I'm trying to figure out how to cook like a mom you know, good home-cooked meals, but not cook bad food for me. I have a lot of my mom's recipes that she cooked when I was a kid, and I love them, but they are generally loaded with stuff that's not really so good. And I'm not talking about the fat. I'm talking about the, the noodles and the rice and, and the things like that. And I clearly have two boys who are carb addicts already. So we're trying to figure out kind of how to cook in an efficient manner where you're not spending an hour and a half in the kitchen every night. It's very hard. So I was looking for uh, different websites that had information on things like that and I found a bunch of these really interesting cooking videos. So I'm going to put a link to some of those for you. I also wanted to let anyone know who is in the Southwest region that the Southwest Fiber Festival will be held October 25th in Amato, Arizona. It's just minutes south of Tucson. And there is a website for that, the southwestfiberfestival.com. We're very excited about that. And um, I think that's all the good stuff. So, Little Women. Last week, we did chapter... Uh, 12, which was Camp Lawrence, where you kind of got to see insight into Louisa May Alcott's bias. And also you got to see the March girls and Lori in action in front of outsiders, which I think is kind of an interesting thing. Well, this week we have, we have a couple more, I, I think, fascinating chapters, because at first glance, they seem kind of, you know, well, that's just great, and it's not very exciting, but there you go. Well, I think this, too, reveals quite a bit about them. Chapter 13 is called Castles in the Air, which is probably, maybe, uh, kind of a, a reference to uh, Thoreau and his writing. Of course, it's not a surprise if Louise May Alcott was sub-referencing Thoreau, because the transcendentalists and her family were all kind of 
hanging out together. But this is a, another chapter where the work ethic of the March girls is put on display and, and very directly, uh, just the name of their little society that they have formed is um, very clearly a representation of that, uh, that ideal. But it's also um, a chapter where Pilgrim's Progress plays a rather large part. It's also, I think, really important to hear the girls' dreams. In this chapter, we get to hear what all the girls, basically what the girls want to be when they grow up, and Lori too. And I think it's very easy for us to write off two of them for having um, traditional or trite or girly uh, fantasies of what they want to be when they grow up. I think it's probably pretty dangerous for we modern people to blow them off. And I think a lot of modern reviewers and critics tend to do that for lots and lots of complicated reasons that I really don't want to even try and pigeonhole. For me, what I take away from this is it's really important to find what will make you happy. The Joseph Campbell follow your bliss thing. And different things motivate all of us. And and for some of us, being an attorney in Manhattan is the end-all be-all, and it is the only thing that's going to make you happy. And God bless if you figure that out young enough so that you can go to a good law school and be successful. For some of us, our world can be fulfilled in very, very different ways and, and fulfilled kind of even definitionally differently. And I think the thing that I've found interesting watching the whole mommy wars thing over the last, I don't know, 10 years is that there isn't a war except in newspapers and magazines. I know plenty of women who stay at home and plenty of women who have kind of a hybrid life like I do, where you work some, but you're at home mostly, and your life is the flexible one so that you can get the kids if they need to go to the doctor. And I know plenty of people who have uh, sometimes made the choice and sometimes had the decision made for them to work full time so that they can have a family and uh, help provide for them. And I know plenty of people who've chosen not to have children at all. What I take away from that real life and from this particular chapter is that figuring out what it is that will make you happy is not easy to do and it's very, very personal and I am deeply impressed at Louisa May Alcott's characterization of these four women and this one young man who at the young ages that they're at, which if I'm remembering this correctly, are 17, 16, 14, and 12, that they all know themselves so well already that they won't go through any circa 1968, I need to drop out and find myself moments. They're, they're already quite well aware of who they are and what they want to be and what they need from life. And all I can think of is, oh my, what a gift. And I can't help but wonder, 
yes, this could be completely a constructed moment that Louisa May Alcott came up with, but knowing how closely she based this on her family and knowing what little we know about her without having read any of the biographies of her, I, I kind of believe that this is awfully close to her reality. If that's the case, I have to start to wonder, maybe all the time that she and her sisters, and that Joe and her sisters in the book, and, and Lori, maybe all the time that they spend doing things and playing creatively, have helped them find themselves very naturally at a very young age so that they don't have to go through any real adolescent angst and fall apart in their early 20s in order to find out what it is that they need to be doing to be happy. And of course, in some ways, they are actually aided by the fact that there are not very many options open to women. Lots of options sometimes just mean you have a harder time making a decision. Of course, no options at all is equally bad, if not worse. We don't ever want to go back to that. But clearly these girls are well on their way to being who they want to be. And there are lots of teenagers today who really haven't made that transition yet. And I've watched them for years and I know how hard it is on them. So I'm kind of fascinated by how this chapter portrays these young women during their time period. So that's chapter 13. That's Castles in the Air. Chapter 14, Secrets, is taking one of those characters' future dreams and putting it into action. And I really, I really love this chapter because it would have been very, very easy for Alcott to kind of pass this off as lightweight or kind of jokey and not take it very seriously. But both Joe and Lori in this chapter take everything very seriously. And I, I just love that. I also have to say personally that I love that you can read Joe like cheap fiction. Because as I said to Dawn on board the cruise, you can read me like cheap fiction. Whatever I'm feeling, it is so obviously on my face. And it gets me into trouble. And I, I try when I'm acting, you know, when I'm not me, when I'm a character, I have no trouble hiding things. But when it's me, I, oh Lord, I have a very, very difficult time and it, it gets me into trouble all, all over the place. Before I start playing the audio for you, we have to send a special thank you to Elizabeth, who read for us last week, chapter 12, and to Janice, who is reading chapters 13 and 14 for us today. I think you will agree with me that they are spectacular readers, and I'm very, very happy about that. I've already gotten some, some lovely uh, feedback from last week saying thank you, thank you, thank you for letting Craftlet readers read. It's so much better. And uh, I have to agree. We have, we have uh, wonderful literary types who are wonderful, wonderful readers who listen to this podcast. And if you are so inclined, please do check out the Ravelry group. Uh, it's a fairly obvious thread about reading for Craftlet throw your hat in the ring and from time to time I will post which chapters need to be recorded and you can just 
put it out there and say, okay, I'm taking chapter 23 or whatever it is. And that way everybody knows that it's been taken and then just send me the file via yousendit.com and you can send it to me at mamaonits at gmail.com. I think that's it. I'm, uh, I'm going to go try and find that song for you while I play you two really lovely chapters of Little Women by Louisa May Alcott. Little Women, Chapter 13, Castles in the Air Laurie lay luxuriously swinging to and fro in his hammock one warm September afternoon, wondering what his neighbors were about but too lazy to go and find out. He was in one of his moods, for the day had been both unprofitable and unsatisfactory, and he was wishing he could live it over again. The hot weather made him indolent, and he had shirked his studies, tried Mr. Brooks' patience to the utmost, displeased his grandfather by practicing half the afternoon, frightened the maidservants half out of their wits by mischievously hinting that one of his dogs was going mad, and, after high words with the stableman about some fancied neglect of his horse, he had flung himself into his hammock to fume over the stupidity of the world in general, till the peace of the lovely day quieted him in spite of himself. Staring up into the green gloom of the horse-chestnuts above him, he dreamed dreams of all sorts, and was just imagining himself tossing on the ocean in a voyage round the world when the sound of voices brought him ashore in a flash. Peeping through the meshes of the hammock, he saw the marches coming out, as if bound on some expedition. "'What in the world are those girls about now?' thought Laurie, opening his sleepy eyes to take a good look for there was something rather peculiar in the appearance of his neighbors. Each wore a large flapping hat, a brown linen pouch slung over one shoulder, and carried a long staff. Meg had a cushion, Joe a book, Beth a basket, and Amy a portfolio. All walked quietly through the garden, out at the little back gate, and began to climb the hill that lay between the house and the river. "'Well, that's cool,' said Laurie to himself, "'to have a picnic and never ask me. "'They can't be going in the boat, for they haven't got the key. "'Perhaps they forgot it. "'I'll take it to them and see what's going on.' "'Though possessed of half a dozen hats, "'it took him some time to find one. "'Then there was the hunt for the key, "'which was at last discovered in his pocket.' so that the girls were quite out of sight when he leaped the fence and ran after them. Taking the shortest way to the boathouse, he waited for them to appear, but no one came, and he went up the hill to take an observation. A grove of pines covered one part of it, and from the heart of this green spot came a clearer sound than the soft sigh of the pines or the drowsy chirp of the crickets. Here's a landscape thought Laurie, peeping through the bushes and looking wide awake and good-natured already. It was a rather pretty little picture, for the sisters sat together in the shady nook with sun and shadow flickering over them, the aromatic wind lifting their hair and cooling their hot cheeks, and all the little wood people going on with their affairs as if these were no strangers but old friends. Meg sat upon her cushion, sewing daintily with her white hands, and looking as fresh and sweet as a rose in her pink dress among the green. 
Beth was sorting the cones that lay thick under the hemlock nearby, for she made pretty things with them. Amy was sketching a group of ferns, and Joe was knitting as she read aloud. A shadow passed over the boy's face as he watched them, feeling that he ought to go away because uninvited, yet lingering because home seemed very lonely, and this quiet party in the woods most attractive to his restless spirit. He stood so still that a squirrel, busy with its harvesting, ran down a pine close beside him, saw him suddenly and skipped back, scolding so shrilly that Beth looked up, espied the wistful face behind the birches, and beckoned with a reassuring smile. "'May I come in, please? Or shall I be a bother?' he asked, advancing slowly. Meg lifted her eyebrows, but Joe scowled at her defiantly and said at once, "'Of course you may. We should have asked you before, only we thought you wouldn't care for such a girl's game as this.' "'I always like your games, but if Meg doesn't want me, I'll go away. I've no objection if you do something. It's against the rules to be idle here,' replied Meg gravely but graciously. "'Much obliged.' I'll do anything if you'll let me stop a bit, for it's as dull as the desert of Sahara down there. Shall I sew, read, cone, draw, or do all at once? Bring on your bears. I'm ready. And Laurie sat down with a submissive expression delightful to behold. Finish this story while I set my heel, said Joe, handing him the book. Yes'm, was the meek answer, as he began doing his best to prove his gratitude for the favor of admission into the Busy Bee Society. The story was not a long one, and when it was finished, he ventured to ask a few questions as a reward of merit. Please, ma'am, could I inquire if this highly instructive and charming institution is a new one? Would you tell him? asked Meg of her sisters. He'll laugh, said Amy warningly. Who cares, said Joe. I guess he'll like it, added Beth. Of course I shall. I give you my word I won't laugh. Tell away, Joe, and don't be afraid. The idea of being afraid of you. Well, you see, we used to play Pilgrim's Progress, and we have been going on with it in earnest all winter and summer. Yes, I know, said Laurie, nodding wisely. Who told you, demanded Joe. Spirits. No, I did. I wanted to amuse him one night when you were all away and he was rather dismal. He did like it, so don't scold, Joe, said Beth meekly. You can't keep a secret. Never mind, it saves trouble now. Go on, please, said Laurie, as Joe became absorbed in her work, looking a trifle displeased. Oh, didn't she tell you about this new plan of ours? Well, we have tried not to waste our holiday, but each one has had a task and worked at it with a will. The vacation is nearly over, the stents are all done, and we are ever so glad that we didn't dawdle. Yes, I should think so. And Laurie thought regretfully of his own idle days. Mother likes to have us out of doors as much as possible, so we bring our work here and have nice times. For the fun of it, we bring our things in these bags, wear the old hats, use poles to climb the hill, and play pilgrims as we used to do years ago. We call this hill the Delectable Mountain, 
or we can look far away and see the country where we hope to live some time. Joe pointed, and Laurie sat up to examine, for through an opening in the wood one could look across the wide blue river, the meadows on the other side, far over the outskirts of the great city, to the green hills that rose to meet the sky. The sun was low, and the heavens glowed with the splendor of an autumn sunset. Gold and purple clouds lay on the hilltops, and rising high into the ruddy light were silvery-white peaks that shone like the airy spires of some celestial city. "'How beautiful that is!' said Laurie softly, for he was quick to see and feel beauty of any kind. It's often so, and we like to watch it, for it is never the same but always splendid, replied Amy, wishing she could paint it. Joe talks about the country where we hope to live some time, the real country, she means, with pigs and chickens and haymaking. It would be nice, but I wish the beautiful country up there was real and we could ever go to it, said Beth musingly. There is a lovelier country even than that where we shall go by and by when we are good enough, answered Meg with her sweetest voice. It seems so long to wait, so hard to do. I want to fly away at once as those swallows fly and go in at that splendid gate. You'll get there, Beth, sooner or later, no fear of that, said Joe. I'm the one that will have to fight and work and climb and wait and maybe never get in after all. You'll have me for company, if that's any comfort. I shall have to do a great deal of traveling before I come in sight of your celestial city. If I arrive late, you'll say a good word for me, won't you, Beth? Something in the boy's face troubled his little friend but she said cheerfully with her quiet eyes on the changing clouds, If people really want to go and really try all their lives, I think they will get in, for I don't believe there are any locks on that door or any guards at the gate. I always imagine it is as it is in the picture, where the shining ones reach out their hands to welcome poor Christian as he comes up from the river. Wouldn't it be fun if all the castles in the air which we make could come true and we could live in them? said Joe after a little pause. I've made such quantities it would be hard to choose which I'd have, said Laurie, lying flat and throwing cones at the squirrel who had betrayed him. You'd have to take your favorite one. What is it? asked Meg. If I tell mine, will you tell yours? Yes, if the girls will, too. We will. Now, Laurie. After I'd seen as much of the world as I want to, I'd like to settle in Germany and have just as much music as I choose. I'm to be a famous musician myself, and all creation is to rush to hear me, and I'm never to be bothered about money or business but just enjoy myself and live for what I like. That's my favorite castle. What's yours, Meg? Margaret seemed to find it a little hard to tell hers, and waved a break before her face as if to disperse imaginary gnats, while she said slowly, I should like a lovely house, full of all sorts of luxurious things. Nice food, pretty clothes, handsome furniture, 
pleasant people and heaps of money. I am to be mistress of it and manage it as I like, with plenty of servants, so I never need work a bit. How I should enjoy it! For I wouldn't be idle, but do good, and make everyone love me dearly. Wouldn't you have a master for your castle in the air? asked Laurie slyly. I said pleasant people, you know, and Meg carefully tied up her shoe as she spoke, so that no one saw her face. Why don't you say you'd have a splendid, wise, good husband and some angelic little children? You know your castle wouldn't be perfect without, said Blunt Joe, who had no tender fancies yet, and rather scorned romance except in books. You'd have nothing but horses, inkstands, and novels in yours, answered Meg petulantly. Wouldn't I, though? I'd have a stable full of Arabian steeds, rooms piled high with books, and I'd write out of a magic inkstand so that my work should be as famous as Laurie's music. I want to do something splendid before I go into my castle, something heroic or wonderful that won't be forgotten after I'm dead. I don't know what, but I'm on the watch for it, and I mean to astonish you all some day. I think I shall write books and get rich and famous. That would suit me, so that's my favorite dream. Mine is to stay at home safe with father and mother and help take care of the family, said Beth contentedly. Don't you wish for anything else? asked Laurie. Since I had my little piano, I am perfectly satisfied. I only wish we may all keep well and be together, nothing else. I have ever so many wishes, but the pet one is to be an artist and to go to Rome and do fine pictures and be the best artist in the whole world, was Amy's modest desire. We're an ambitious set, aren't we? Every one of us but Beth wants to be rich and famous and gorgeous in every respect. I do wonder if any of us will ever get our wishes, said Laurie, chewing grass like a meditative calf. I've got the key to my castle in the air, but whether I can unlock the door remains to be seen, observed Joe mysteriously. I've got the key to mine, but I'm not allowed to try it. Hang college, muttered Laurie with an impatient sigh. Here's mine, and Amy waved her pencil. I haven't got any, said Meg forlornly. Yes, you have, said Laurie at once. Where? In your face. Nonsense, that's of no use. Wait and see if it doesn't bring you something worth having, replied the boy, laughing at the thought of a charming little secret which he fancied he knew. Meg colored behind the break, but asked no questions and looked across the river with the same expectant expression which Mr. Brooke had worn when he told the story of the night. If we are all alive ten years hence, let's meet and see how many of us have got our wishes or how much nearer we are then than now, said Joe, always ready with a plan. Bless me, how old I shall be, twenty-seven, exclaimed Meg, who felt grown up already, having just reached seventeen. You and I will be twenty-six, Teddy, Beth twenty-four, and Amy twenty-two. What a venerable party, said Joe. I hope I shall have done something to be proud of by that time, but I'm such a lazy dog, I'm afraid I shall dawdle, Joe. 
You need a motive, mother says, and when you get it, she is sure you'll work splendidly. Is she? By Jupiter, I will, if I only get the chance, cried Laurie, sitting up with sudden energy. I ought to be satisfied to please Grandfather, and I do try, but it's working against the grain, you see, and comes hard. He wants me to be an India merchant, as he was, and I'd rather be shocked. I hate tea and silk and spices and every sort of rubbish his old ships bring, and I don't care how soon they go to the bottom when I own them. Going to college ought to satisfy him, for if I give him four years, he ought to let me off from the business. But he's set, and I've got to do just as he did, unless I break away and please myself as my father did. If there was anyone left to stay with the old gentleman, I'd do it tomorrow. Laurie spoke excitedly and looked ready to carry his threat into execution on the slightest provocation, for he was growing up very fast, and in spite of his indolent ways, had a young man's hatred of subjection, a young man's restless longing to try the world for himself. I advise you to sail away in one of your ships and never come home again till you have tried your own way, said Joe whose imagination was fired by the thought of such a daring exploit, and whose sympathy was excited by what she called Teddy's wrongs. That's not right, Joe. You mustn't talk in that way, and Laurie mustn't take your bad advice. You should do just what your grandfather wishes, my dear boy, said Meg in her most maternal tone. Do your best at college, and when he sees that you try to please him, I'm sure he won't be hard on you or unjust to you. As you say, there is no one else to stay with and love him, and you'd never forgive yourself if you left him without his permission. Don't be dismal or fret, but do your duty and you'll get your reward, as good Mr. Brooke has by being respected and loved. What do you know about him? asked Laurie grateful for the good advice, but objecting to the lecture, and glad to turn the conversation from himself after his unusual outbreak. Only what your grandpa told us about him, how he took good care of his own mother till she died, and wouldn't go abroad as tutor to some nice person because he wouldn't leave her, and how he provides now for an old woman who nursed his mother and never tells anyone but is just as generous and patient and good as he can be. So he is, dear old fellow, said Laurie heartily, as Meg paused, looking flushed and earnest with her story. It's like Grandpa to find out all about him without letting him know, and to tell his goodness to others, so that they might like him. Brooke couldn't understand why your mother was so kind to him, asking him over with me and treating him in her beautiful, friendly way. He thought she was just perfect and talked about it for days and days and went on about you all in flaming style. If ever I do get my wish, you see what I'll do for Brooke. Begin to do something now by not plaguing his life out, said Meg sharply. How do you know I do, miss? I can always tell by his face when he goes away. If you have been good, he looks satisfied and walks briskly. If you have plagued him, he's sober and walks slowly, as if he wanted to go back and do his work better. 
Well, I like that. So you keep an account of my good and bad marks in Brooke's face, do you? I see him bow and smile as he passes your window, but I didn't know you'd got up a telegraph. We haven't. Don't be angry, and oh, don't tell him I said anything. It was only to show that I cared how you get on, and what is said here is said in confidence, you know, cried Meg, much alarmed at the thought of what might follow from her careless speech. I don't tell tales, replied Laurie, with his high and mighty air, as Joe called a certain expression which he occasionally wore. Only if Brooke is going to be a thermometer, I must mind and have fair weather for him to report. Please don't be offended. I didn't mean to preach or tell tales or be silly. I only thought Joe was encouraging you in a feeling which you'd be sorry for by and by. You are so kind to us, we feel as if you were our brother and say just what we think. Forgive me, I meant it kindly. And Meg offered her hand with a gesture both affectionate and timid. Ashamed of his momentary pique, Laurie squeezed the kind little hand and said frankly, I'm the one to be forgiven. I'm cross and have been out of sorts all day. I like to have you tell me my faults and be sisterly, so don't mind if I am grumpy sometimes. I thank you all the same. Bent on showing that he was not offended, he made himself as agreeable as possible, wound cotton for Meg, recited poetry to please Joe, shook down cones for Beth, and helped Amy with her ferns, proving himself a fit person to belong to the Busy Bee Society. In the midst of an animated discussion on the domestic habits of turtles, one of those amiable creatures having strolled up from the river, the faint sound of a bell warned them that Hannah had put the tea to draw, and they would just have time to get home to supper. May I come again? asked Laurie. Yes, if you are good and love your book, as the boys in the primer are told to do, said Meg, smiling. I'll try. Then you may come, and I'll teach you to knit as the Scotchmen do. There's a big demand for socks just now, added Joe, waving hers like a big blue worsted banner as they parted at the gate. That night, when Beth played to Mr. Lawrence in the twilight, Laurie, standing in the shadow of the curtain, listened to the little David whose simple music always quieted his moody spirit and watched the old man who sat with his gray head on his hand, thinking tender thoughts of the dead child he had loved so much. Remembering the conversation of the afternoon, the boy said to himself, with a resolve to make the sacrifice cheerfully, I'll let my castle go and stay with the old gentleman while he needs me, for I am all he has. End of chapter 13 Little Women Chapter 14 Secrets Joe was very busy in the garret, for the October days began to grow chilly and the afternoons were short. For two or three hours the sun lay warmly in the high window, showing Joe seated on the old sofa, writing busily with her papers spread out upon a trunk before her, while Scrabble, the pet rat, promenaded the beams overhead accompanied by his oldest son, 
a fine young fellow who was evidently very proud of his whiskers. Quite absorbed in her work, Joe scribbled away till the last page was filled when she signed her name with a flourish and threw down her pen, exclaiming, There, I've done my best. If this won't suit, I shall have to wait till I can do better. Lying back on the sofa, she read the manuscript carefully through, making dashes here and there and putting in many exclamation points, which looked like little balloons. Then she tied it up with a smart red ribbon and sat a minute looking at it with a sober, wistful expression, which plainly showed how earnest her work had been. Joe's desk up here was an old tin kitchen which hung against the wall. In it she kept her papers and a few books, safely shut away from Scrabble, who being likewise of a literary turn, was fond of making a circulating library of such books as were left in his way by eating the leaves. From this tin receptacle Joe produced another manuscript, and putting both in her pocket, crept quietly downstairs, leaving her friends to nibble on her pens and taste her ink. She put on her hat and jacket as noiselessly as possible, and going to the back entry window, got out upon the roof of a low porch, swung herself down to the grassy bank, and took a roundabout way to the road. Once there she composed herself, hailed a passing omnibus, and rolled away to town, looking very merry and mysterious. If any one had been watching her, he would have thought her movements decidedly peculiar, for on alighting she went off at a great pace till she reached a certain number in a certain busy street. Having found the place with some difficulty, she went into the doorway, looked up the dirty stairs, and after standing stock still a minute, suddenly dived into the street and walked away as rapidly as she came. This maneuver she repeated several times to the great amusement of a black-eyed young gentleman lounging in the window of a building opposite. On returning for the third time, Jo gave herself a shake, pulled her hat over her eyes and walked up the stairs, looking as if she were going to have all her teeth out. There was a dentist sign, among others, which adorned the entrance, and after staring a moment at the pair of artificial jaws which slowly opened and shut to draw attention to a fine set of teeth, the young gentleman put on his coat, took his hat, and went down to post himself in the opposite doorway, saying with a smile and a shiver, It's like her to come alone, but if she has a bad time she'll need someone to help her home. In ten minutes Joe came running downstairs with a very red face and the general appearance of a person who had just passed through a trying ordeal of some sort. When she saw the young gentleman she looked anything but pleased and passed him with a nod. But he followed, asking with an air of sympathy, Did you have a bad time? Not very. You got through quickly. Yes, thank goodness. Why did you go alone? Didn't want anyone to know. You're the oddest fellow I ever saw. How many did you have out? Joe looked at her friend as if she did not understand him, then began to laugh as if mightily amused at something. 
There are two which I want to have come out, but I must wait a week. What are you laughing at? You are up to some mischief, Joe, said Laurie, looking mystified. So are you. What were you doing, sir, up in that billiard saloon? Begging your pardon, ma'am, it wasn't a billiard saloon, but a gymnasium, and I was taking a lesson in fencing. I'm glad of that. Why? You can teach me, and then, when we play Hamlet, you can be Laertes, and we'll make a fine thing of the fencing scene. Laurie burst out with a hearty boy's laugh, which made several passers-by smile in spite of themselves. I'll teach you whether we play Hamlet or not. It's grand fun, and will straighten you up capitally. But I don't believe that was your only reason for saying, I'm glad, in that decided way, was it now? No, I was glad you were not in the saloon, because I hope you never go to such places. Do you? Not often. I wish you wouldn't. It's no harm, Joe. I have billiards at home, but it's no fun unless you have good players. So, as I'm fond of it, I come sometimes and have a game with Ned Moffat or some of the other fellows. Oh, dear, I'm so sorry, for you'll get to liking it better and better and will waste time and money and grow like those dreadful boys. I did hope you'd stay respectable and be a satisfaction to your friends, said Joe, shaking her head. Can't a fellow take a little innocent amusement now and then without losing his respectability? asked Laurie, looking nettled. That depends on how and where he takes it. I don't like Ned and his set and wish you'd keep out of it. Mother won't let us have him at our house, though he wants to come. And if you grow like him, she won't be willing to have us frolic together as we do now. Won't she? asked Laurie anxiously. No, she can't bear fashionable young men, and she'd shut us all up in bandboxes rather than have us associate with them. Well, she needn't get out her bandboxes yet. I'm not a fashionable party and don't mean to be, but I do like harmless larks now and then, don't you? Yes, nobody minds them, so lark away, but don't get wild, will you? or there will be an end to all our good times. I'll be a double distilled saint. I can't bear saints. Just be a simple, honest, respectable boy and we'll never desert you. I don't know what I should do if you acted like Mr. King's son. He has plenty of money but didn't know how to spend it and got tipsy and gambled and ran away and forged his father's name, I believe, and was altogether horrid. You think I'm likely to do the same? Much obliged. No, I don't. Oh, dear, no. But I hear people talking about money being such a temptation, and I sometimes wish you were poor. I shouldn't worry then. Do you worry about me, Joe? A little, when you look moody and discontented, as you sometimes do, for you've got such a strong will, if you once got started wrong, I'm afraid it would be hard to stop you. Laurie walked in silence a few minutes, and Joe watched him, 
wishing she had held her tongue, for his eyes looked angry, though his lips smiled as if at her warnings. "'Are you going to deliver lectures all the way home?' he asked presently. "'Of course not. Why?' "'Because if you are, I'll take a bus. If you're not, I'd like to walk with you and tell you something very interesting.' I won't preach any more, and I'd like to hear the news immensely. Very well, then, come on. It's a secret, and if I tell you, you must tell me yours. I haven't got any, began Joe, but stopped suddenly, remembering that she had. You know you have. You can't hide anything, so up and fess, or I won't tell, cried Laurie. Is your secret a nice one? Oh, isn't it? All about people you know and such fun. You ought to hear it, and I've been aching to tell it this long time. Come, you begin. You'll not say anything about it at home, will you? Not a word. And you won't tease me in private? I never tease. Yes, you do. You get everything you want out of people. I don't know how you do it, but you are a born wheedler. Thank you. Fire away. Well, I've left two stories with a newspaperman, and he's to give his answer next week, whispered Joe in her confidant's ear. Hurrah for Miss March, the celebrated American authoress, cried Laurie, throwing up his hat and catching it again, to the great delight of two ducks, four cats, five hens, and half a dozen Irish children, for they were out of the city now. Hush, it won't come to anything, I dare say, but I couldn't rest till I had tried, and I said nothing about it because I didn't want anyone else to be disappointed. It won't fail. Why, Joe, your stories are works of Shakespeare compared to half the rubbish that is published every day. Won't it be fun to see them in print, and shan't we feel proud of our authoress? Joe's eyes sparkled, for it is always pleasant to be believed in, and a friend's praise is always sweeter than a dozen newspaper puffs. Where's your secret? Play fair, Teddy, or I'll never believe you again, she said, trying to extinguish the brilliant hopes that blazed up at a word of encouragement. I may get into a scrape for telling, but I didn't promise not to, so I will, for I never feel easy in my mind till I've told you any plummy bits of news I get. I know where Meg's glove is. Is that all? said Joe, looking disappointed, as Laurie nodded and twinkled with a face full of mysterious intelligence. It's quite enough for the present, as you'll agree when I tell you where it is. Tell, then. Laurie bent and whispered three words in Joe's ear, which produced a comical change. She stood and stared at him for a minute, looking both surprised and displeased, and then walked on, saying, How do you know? Saw it. Where? Pocket. All this time? Yes, isn't that romantic? No, it's horrid. Don't you like it? Of course I don't. It's ridiculous. It won't be allowed. My patience, what would Meg say? 
You are not to tell anyone, mind that. I didn't promise. That was understood, and I trusted you. Well, I won't for the present anyway, but I'm disgusted and wished you hadn't told me. I thought you'd be pleased. At the idea of anybody coming to take Meg away? No, thank you. You'll feel better about it when somebody comes to take you away. I'd like to see anyone try it, cried Joe fiercely. <laughs> so should I, and Laurie chuckled at the idea. I don't think secrets agree with me. I feel rumpled up in my mind since you told me that, said Joe rather ungratefully. Race down this hill with me and you'll be all right, suggested Laurie. No one was in sight. The smooth road sloped invitingly before her, and finding the temptation irresistible, Joe darted away, soon leaving hat and comb behind her and scattering hairpins as she ran. Laurie reached the goal first and was quite satisfied with the success of his treatment, for his Atalanta came panting up with flying hair, bright eyes, ruddy cheeks, and no signs of dissatisfaction in her face. I wish I was a horse, then I could run for miles in this splendid air and not lose my breath. It was capital, but see what a guy it's made me. Go, pick up my things like a cherub as you are, said Joe, dropping down under a maple tree which was carpeting the bank with crimson leaves. Laurie leisurely departed to recover the lost property, and Joe bundled up her braids, hoping no one would pass by till she was tidy again. But someone did pass, and who should it be but Meg, looking particularly ladylike in her state and festival suit, for she had been making calls. "'What in the world are you doing here?' she asked, regarding her disheveled sister with well-bred surprise. "'Getting leaves,' meekly answered Joe, sorting the rosy handful she had just swept up. "'And hairpins,' added Laurie, throwing half a dozen into Joe's lap. They grow on this road, Meg. So do combs and brown straw hats. You have been running, Joe. How could you? When will you stop such romping ways, said Meg reprovingly, as she settled her cuffs and smoothed her hair, with which the wind had taken liberties. Never till I'm stiff and old and have to use a crutch. Don't try to make me grow up before my time, Meg. It's hard enough to have you change all of a sudden. Let me be a little girl as long as I can. As she spoke, Joe bent over the leaves to hide the trembling of her lips, for lately she had felt that Margaret was fast getting to be a woman, and Laurie's secret made her dread the separation which must surely come some time and now seemed very near. He saw the trouble in her face and drew Meg's attention from it by asking quickly, Where have you been calling all so fine? At the gardener's, and Sally has been telling me all about Belle Moffat's wedding. It was very splendid, and they have gone to spend the winter in Paris. Just think how delightful that must be. Do you envy her, Meg? said Laurie. 
I'm afraid I do. I'm glad of it, muttered Joe, tying on her hat with a jerk. Why? asked Meg, looking surprised. Because if you care much about riches, you will never go and marry a poor man, said Joe, frowning at Laurie, who was mutely warning her to mind what she said. I shall never go and marry anyone observed Meg, walking on with great dignity, while the others followed, laughing, whispering, skipping stones, and behaving like children, as Meg said to herself, though she might have been tempted to join them if she had not had her best dress on. For a week or two, Jo behaved so queerly that her sisters were quite bewildered. She rushed to the door when the postman rang, was rude to Mr. Brooke whenever they met, would sit looking at Meg with a woebegone face occasionally jumping up to shake and then kiss her in a very mysterious manner. Laurie and she were always making signs to one another and talking about spread-eagles till the girls declared that they had both lost their wits. On the second Saturday, after Joe got out of the window, Meg, as she sat sewing at her window, was scandalized by the sight of Laurie chasing Joe all over the garden and finally capturing her in Amy's bower. What went on there Meg could not see, but shrieks of laughter were heard, followed by the murmur of voices and a great flapping of newspapers. "'What shall we do with that girl?' She never will behave like a young lady, sighed Meg, as she watched the race with a disapproving face. I hope she won't. She is so funny and dear as she is, said Beth, who had never betrayed that she was a little hurt at Joe's having secrets with anyone but her. It's very trying, but we can never make her come la faux added Amy, who was making some new frills for herself, with her curls tied up in a very becoming way, to agreeable things that made her feel unusually elegant and ladylike. In a few minutes, Joe bounced in, laid herself on the sofa, and affected to read. "'Have you anything interesting there?' asked Meg, with condescension. "'Nothing but a story. Won't amount to much, I guess.' returned Joe, carefully keeping the name of the paper out of sight. You'd better read it aloud. That will amuse us and keep you out of mischief, said Amy in her most grown-up voice. What's the name? asked Beth, wondering why Joe kept her face behind the sheet. The Rival Painters. That sounds well. Read it, said Meg. With a loud <clears throat> and a long breath, Joe began to read very fast. The girls listened with interest, for the tale was romantic and somewhat pathetic as most of the characters died in the end. I like that about the splendid picture, was Amy's approving remark as Joe paused. I prefer the lovering part. Viola and Angelo are two of our favorite names. Isn't that queer? said Meg, wiping her eyes, for the lovering part was tragical. Who wrote it? asked Beth, who'd caught a glimpse of Joe's face. 
The reader suddenly sat up, cast away the paper displaying a flushed countenance, and with a funny mixture of solemnity and excitement replied in a loud voice, Your sister. You? cried Meg, dropping her work. It's very good, said Amy critically. I knew it, I knew it. Oh, my Joe, I am so proud. And Beth ran to hug her sister and exult over this splendid success. Dear me, how delighted they all were, to be sure. How Meg wouldn't believe it till she saw the words, Miss Josephine March, actually printed in the paper. How graciously Amy criticized the artistic parts of the story and offered hints for a sequel, which unfortunately couldn't be carried out as the hero and heroine were dead. How Beth got excited and skipped and sang with joy. How Hannah came in to exclaim, Sakes alive! Well, I never! In great astonishment at that Joe's doings. How proud Mrs. March was when she knew it. How Joe laughed with tears in her eyes as she declared she might as well be a peacock and done with it, and how the spread eagle may be said to flap his wings triumphantly over the house of March as the paper passed from hand to hand. Tell us about it. When did it come? How much did you get for it? What will father say? Won't Laurie laughed, cried the family, all in one breath as they clustered about Joe, for these foolish, affectionate people made a jubilee of every little household joy. Stop jabbering, girls, and I'll tell you everything, said Joe, wondering if Miss Burney felt any grander over her Evelina than she did over her rival painters. Having told how she disposed of her tales, Joe added, and when I went to get my answer, the man said he liked them both, but didn't pay beginners, only let them print in his paper and notice the stories. It was good practice, he said, and when the beginners improved, anyone would pay. So I let him have the two stories, and today this was sent to me, and Laurie caught me with it and insisted on seeing it, so I let him and he said it was good, and I shall write more, and he's going to get the next paid for, and I am so happy, for in time I may be able to support myself and help the girls. Joe's breath gave out here, and wrapping her head in the paper, she bedewed her little story with a few natural tears, for to be independent and earn the praise of those she loved were the dearest wishes of her heart and this seemed to be the first step toward that happy end. End of chapter 14 Excellent. Ah, lovely, lovely. Can you see what's on the horizon for us? Hmm. Well, I am going to go pack. <laughs> And you can't stop me. I have to pack for uh, both the little boys and myself. We each have a roller bag to take with us, and we each have a backpack to take with us. And I looked this morning to start the process, and my four-year-old had packed two pairs of pajamas and his little stuffed penguin. <laughs> and that was it. No underwear, no nothing. 
I was just really impressed that he'd packed anything at all. I thought that was adorable. So I'm going to go uh, perhaps add a little to his bag because he's, he's so sweet. And um, I will be, if all goes well, I will be photo blogging on the mamaownits.blogspot.com blog site. I will try and photo blog from my cell phone as much as I can in New York. So if you want to see pictures of where we are and what we're doing, that's where you'll find them. I hope you have a great week. I plan on having one too. And I will be back with you next week, albeit probably a little tired, but at least somewhere that's not 87 degrees and 87% humidity. I think, honestly, the universe has set this up so that we would fly back to New York and say, oh my, we're so glad to live in Tucson. Because I miss it. You know I miss it. I talk about it. I miss it. But not so much the summers. I may be the only human who wants to live in Arizona during the summer and New York during the fall, winter, and spring. But then I'm a freak of nature that way. So, you know, there it is. Have a great one. I'll talk to you in a week. Please remember to support the people who support Craftlit. Please go to Knitting Out Loud, Listen While You Knit, Carolina Homespun at carolinahomespun.com, and the Golden Gate Fiber Institute.org. You can find a blog for this podcast at craftlit.blogspot.com. That's craftlit, C R A F T L I T, all one word, blogspot. B-L-O-G-S-P-O-T or at craftlit.libsyn.com Libsyn is L-I-B-S-Y-N and of course you can subscribe at iTunes. Craftlit is made possible by the generous donations of its listeners and for that I am truly grateful. And don't forget, if your hands are too busy to pick up a book, at least you can turn one on. <laughs>